Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast from IWF. Today, I'm here with Dr. Kelly Victory, a board-certified trauma and emergency specialist with over 15 years of clinical experience. She's also an expert on the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, and she serves as president of the Colorado chapter of Docs for Patient Care, a physician group dedicated to protecting the doctor-patient relationship and personal choice in healthcare. Dr. Victory, or Kelly, as I might call her, served as an advisor to the Romney Healthcare Policy Team and remains actively involved in the reform debate. I will forgive her for attending Duke University for her undergrad because she went to my alma mater, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for medical school. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly. Great to be with you, Hadley. So today we're going to be discussing the ongoing impact of the ACA or Obamacare on the world of medicine and especially on healthcare providers. And as I've told you uh, in the past, this topic is of great personal interest to me because my husband is a young physician. Right now he's in his residency years, those tough training years. Uh, and, And maybe to start the conversation, Kelly, I would just ask you, you know, what would you say to a young doctor or a group of young doctors about Obamacare? How would you kind of um, explain the law and its potential impact uh, generally on the world of medicine? Well, Hadley, I think it's um, I think it's helpful to recall what the stated intention of the law was back before it was passed. So, if you dial it back to say 2008, 2009, prior to the passage of the law, it really was intended to address three main things. Number one, to address a number of the large number of quote uninsured patients in the United States. Uh, noted it's somewhere around 30 million, although we could contest that, but to address uninsured. Number two was to improve access to health care. And number three was to address the escalating costs in health care. So if you look at those three things uh, and, and dial it back, uh, unfortunately, the legislation has really been quite a failure on all three of those. There still remain today, now five years after the passage of, of the law, about 30 million uninsured people. We've simply changed who they are. They're, they're, it's a different mix, but there's still about 30 million uninsured Americans. If anything, on, on the access side, if anything, access to care has actually uh, decreased and will probably continue to decrease as more and more physicians opt out of Obamacare, Medicare, and Medicaid reimbursements. And then as more and more physicians retire early or change the nature of their practices, access will also, I believe, continue to decrease, not increase. And then thirdly, with regard to the rising health care costs, um, the, the vast majority of Americans have actually seen an increase in their premiums, as well as their deductibles since the passage of the law. Uh, it's sort of a double whammy uh, when you realize that those uh, increased out-of-pocket uh, costs come along with likely decreased services. So the legislation really failed on its initial uh, three-pronged focus. The only group perhaps more negatively impacted than patients by the Affordable Care Act, in my estimation, would be physicians. And here's why I say that. Um, Ultimately, the bill is a massive set of new regulations and requirements that cover everything from what treatments, therapeutics are covered, to what a physician has to document in the patient's medical record, how billing is conducted, and everything in between. part and parcel with the body of the Affordable Care Act is a large and growing set of new clinical, quote, guidelines 
aimed at helping doctors and patients to make better choices in healthcare. And a lot of those guidelines are not based on new clinical studies or updated research, but instead they're based on actuarial studies or cost-saving initiatives that require some element of rationing of services. And the problem is that reimbursement for services is largely predicated or based on those guidelines. So if I were talking to a group of medical students or residents, what I would say is, you know, the the Affordable Care Act, unfortunately, really constitutes a full-out government intrusion into the day-to-day practice of medicine. And I think the the ultimate result of that is that it disrupts what was previously the sacrosanct relationship between patients and doctors. Um, it's no longer up to those two individuals to determine what's in the patient's best interest or what the doctor believes is the most appropriate course of action because there's now a third party in the examining room. And that third party, the government, uh, doesn't necessarily have the patient's best interest in mind nor the ability to make the right clinical choices. So not only has the dynamic been changed, but I believe that the quality of care and clinical outcomes will be affected over time by the Affordable Care Act. Well, that's a great overview. And um, man, I'm going to hand this podcast over to my husband and his friends to listen to afterwards so they can uh, hear some of your great advice. One of my pet peeves actually is when people say things like, I get my health care from my employer. And I know what they mean. They mean they get their health insurance from their employer and they have employer-sponsored health insurance. But I think there's a confusion about what health coverage and health care, how the two are actually distinct. And I know that you can make an argument that the two go hand in hand, but... Um, I think it's interesting that you you differentiated number one um, insurance and number two access to health care and then number three health care costs. And if you don't mind, I'd like to drill down a little bit on that second point, access to health care services, because ultimately that's more important than whether or not someone has insurance. But when it comes to the type of care, how people are consuming care, do you uh, expect that the Affordable Care Act will change how people consume health care? Because I think one of the the concepts or one of the promises of the law was if people have insurance, then they can have better access to preventive medicine. And then they won't be um, seeking care through an emergency department. They won't be, you know, taking their non-acute problems to an ER physician. Do you see that happening? Or how do you see the future of how these patient populations interact with the healthcare system? Well, you're making a critical differentiation, Hadley, and it's the one that I, as I said, I started with, which is that health insurance Having an insurance card in your wallet, having, quote, coverage, has nothing to do with access to care. And legislators, unfortunately, use the two phrases interchangeably. They say Mm -hmm. everyone's got health care now, or everyone has health insurance now, so everyone will have access to care. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They have nothing to do with one another. Uh, And I've given the analogy in the past that it would be tantamount to giving everybody a coupon for a free dinner at Denny's and saying, well, everyone's hungry, we can't have that. I'll give everybody a free coupon for dinner at Denny's. But that's not helpful if there's no Denny's in your town right. or no Denny's in the town. You're walking around with something in your wallet that is, frankly, useless. And the, the problem is we already had a deficit of primary care physicians going into the passage of this law, and the law certainly has done nothing, trust me, to to lure doctors into primary care practice. Uh, Furthermore, the doctors that were in primary care practices are leaving in droves because the reimbursement levels are so low. So people predicted, for reasons that are unclear to me, that the passage of the law would in fact 
keep people out of emergency departments, out of the high-cost care, and drive them into these primary care practices. As I've said, those primary care practices are fewer and fewer you know, far between, and people just don't have easy time accessing them. But it, frankly, it's human nature. Unfortunately, if you haven't been receiving care, if you haven't had uh, insurance in the past, you haven't had coverage, to say, wow, now I can go anywhere I want, and I'm going to go the most convenient place that I can, and that is largely for people, the emergency department. So the emergency department usage numbers are going up significantly, and along with that, wait times are going up because people are using emergency departments as a place to avail themselves of, of even the most insignificant or primary care, uh, chronic care issues because they cannot be turned away. Wow. So another question I have is, you know, doctors practice in a variety of settings. Some of them are practicing in a, in a hospital or even in a university hospital setting. And then other physicians may be part owners in a private practice or have a clinic that belongs to them. So how will the impact of Obamacare affect these different types of physicians differently? Well, I think the biggest change that we are seeing, uh, and it's it's probably the greatest tragedy to me of Obamacare, is that more and more physicians are having to leave private practice and go into larger multi-specialty practices or work for a larger health care system. It simply is not uh, fiscally possible to stay, to stay in a small private practice right now. So the numbers don't make sense because the payer mix is profoundly changed as a result of Obamacare. If you look at uh, the fact that you know, any physician needs to understand his or her payer mix in order to make ends meet and to run it like a credible business, a solvent business. And in the past, Medicaid uh, rates for most practices were somewhere between 9 and 20%. Uh, and then the rest was made up with either private insurance or Medicare. And Medicare, although it doesn't pay as well as private insurance, pays around 90% of uh, commercial insurance rates, where Medicaid and Obamacare pay a fraction of that. So, as you can, by doing the simple math, if the Medicare, Medicaid, excuse me, if the Medicaid and Obamacare component of your practice increases, say, from nine. Uh, or 15% up to 35 or 40%, by definition, that, that has to be made up somewhere else. So either you're going to jack up the rates for the other people in your practice, you're going to have to take on more patients, you're going to have to, something has to change. And what is changing for most physicians is that they are closing up shop and going and being subsumed by a large hospital system. And as I said, the overall impact of that really is a huge loss of autonomy. It's an abdication of ownership and decision-making, uh, ownership of your own practice, ownership. It's the very thing that attracted a majority of physicians into the profession was the ability to have some control. It's the old, you know, I'm the master of my fate, the captain mm-hmm. of my soul, and physicians are losing that. They have, mm-hmm. they have no choice. You know, I think it's interesting. I think, of course, it's important for any physician, especially if he owns his own practice, to know about his payer mix. But I have a different question. In in your opinion, how much do you think that today's doctors know about the Affordable Care Act or health policy in general? I mean, maybe those in private practice have to follow um, more closely. But what about doctors who are in training or doctors who are working in a larger hospital setting? What's your sense of how 
this law and health policy in general is being perceived among today's doctors? Well, it's funny. I think there's, um, I think there's a significant generational difference, if you will, mm. in the perception of the reform bill. Older, more established, experienced physicians have a somewhat different view than younger physicians or those who are still in training. And this stems from the fact um, that, like any profession, established physicians understand the realities of running a business, managing a practice, balancing work-life challenges, all of those things, where a younger physician perhaps have a more ideological view that hasn't yet been tested by, by reality. Um, I think the way that the law has been presented to the public, as well as to physicians in training, is that health care is a right, you know, that the United mm-hmm. States had a health care crisis, um, or, or even the fact that we had, quote, 30 million uninsured people. And those are all premises that I think deserve serious challenge. Um, mm-hmm. If you ask your average young physician, including I would be interested in your people, your husband or your husband's classmates, is healthcare a right? They will, in general, you, you will hear a resounding absolutely. And in fact, if you ask them where that right came from, many people will tell you it's a constitutional right. Wow. Having no <laughs> clue that the word, having no clue that the word healthcare doesn't, doesn't appear anywhere in the Constitution. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, so, but, but they are very adamant that, that this is a, a, a right. Uh, likewise, when I hear people refer to the, uh, quote, American health care crisis, um, I will frequently play dumb and say, what, what was the crisis? Right. What is the crisis? We, we have, bar none, have had the best health care system on the planet. Yes, we've had some issues, and don't get me wrong, there are lots of things that needed to be addressed and to be reformed, not the least of which is the entire insurance industry, the fact that we needed to address things like pre-existing conditions, that we needed to address that relatively small component of the population that, in fact, um, is so ill or incapable of working that they need to be subsumed into a Medicaid sort of a, a program. But I, I think that we really could challenge those three fundamental premises, that, that health care is a right, that we had a health care crisis, or that we had a huge uninsured population. So I think that there's a big difference between uh, generationally amongst physicians. And I think right now, uh, part and parcel with this is that the, there's a cultural shift uh, in younger physicians, the younger generation, um, even those older than, than the current millennials, believe that there's a, more of a collective, that there's more of a, a social uh, awareness, that there's more of a, a sense that we need to be our brother's keeper. And that's yeah, I, very different from what people who are, say, over the age of 45 might think. It is interesting. And they are though. not really teaching um, these sorts of issues. They are not teaching healthcare policy in medical uh-huh. school anymore or 50 years ago. There simply is a cultural change, a philosophical change, an ideological change about what people really are entitled to. And entitlement yeah. uh, is sort of people consider healthcare to be an entitlement. It is interesting, the misperceptions about the healthcare system, especially the system that preceded the Affordable Care Act, because I remember being uh, abroad, actually, on my honeymoon, uh, talking with some people from Europe. Actually, these people were particularly, they were from England, and some people from England might contest that they're a part of Europe, but that's another, that's another issue. These people <laughs> really didn't know that, uh, that we have Medicaid. They didn't know that we have emergency medical treatment laws that require hospitals basically to see patients regardless of their ability to pay. I mean, they really thought that in America, people who were poor and sick were turned away and died on the street. You know, 
I thought, wow, this I is... had that exact conversation with a, a British physician uh, just this past week at a conf- healthcare conference in Chicago. It said the same thing. What, he said to me, what, you know, what is it about Americans that would allow them to step over people who are dying? They <laughs> Where did this concept come from? Uh. In fact, I would submit to you that that people who have no insurance at all get some of the best health care because they can show up at the top university hospital emergency department and by law cannot be turned away. They must be treated. Now, I'm not suggesting that that is that we all go in insurance care at all. But I I would push back on the concept that that they weren't able to have access to care, and that, and that there weren't some other ways to really address the problem. Uh, and we, we ended up scrapping, I believe, with this law, we scrapped an incredibly robust health care system to address the problem of somewhere around 7% of the population. Right. And it is true uh, for our listeners, what Kelly's saying about the, the nature of the U.S. health system. I know there were some international rankings before the Affordable Care Act passed, and some of them would say things like, we're, we're 40th in the world when it comes to the quality of our health care system. But those metrics were completely bogus in some cases. They would compare our infant mortality rates with infant mortality rates in countries that don't even count infants as born alive until they live to a certain number of days or have a certain weight at birth. And we have just incredible capabilities in the United States when it comes to uh, neonatal units and ICU units for, for firstborn babies. But when you look at the metric of which country has the healthcare system that is most attentive to the individual needs and care of the individual patient, the United States ranked unequivocally number one in the World Health Organization's rating. So it really, it really is an amazing healthcare system. The payment system, I believe, is you know what is broken today. But when you when you talk about whether or not healthcare is a right, and I think this is such an important part of the debate. I think on the one hand, on the on the left, generally people say healthcare is a right. But then on the other hand, maybe more people on the on the right hand side say. The medicine should be run like a business. And I think that that, uh, that jargon may turn some people off because we do refer sometimes to patients as consumers and doctors as providers. And, and recently I heard a physician bemoaning the fact that, in his opinion, medicine has become too much like a business. And I found this kind of odd because I, I don't know how much medicine today is truly like a business. I think there's too many third and fourth and fifth party payers to make it uh, truly like a competitive and, and robust marketplace or a business place. Um, but in your opinion, Kelly, should medicine be like a business or are there some ways that medicine maybe is unique? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I think there's no... Medicine is absolutely a business. If you think about it in terms of the, the, the actual definition of that, it's even a small practice funnels millions of dollars in revenues through it. Uh, yet many physicians fail to apply even the most basic business tenets, things like understanding their payer mix or doing a market assessment. Uh, creating a budget or a five-year financial projection, you know, marketing plans, those sorts of things. Um, but it's absolutely a business. The problem is that when we say the word business, it implies things like profit, revenues, business plan, and a host of other words that for some reason physicians have been led to believe imply that they're selling out or that they're in medicine for the wrong reason. And that simply isn't so. You know, the, the one thing that will bring back a sense of autonomy in healthcare and guarantees, frankly, that physicians will be able to remain independent, remain available for their patients over the long haul, is to run a financially solvent, successful practice. And that means, by definition, understanding that it's a business. Um, that said, 
the if you take away if you strip away the most fundamental component of healthcare which as i said previously is that sacrosanct relationship between physicians and their patients then i think you really have perverted the entire relationship other than other than the relationship perhaps that somebody might have with their priest mm-hmm. there is no relationship that is quite so intimate outside of, uh, of, of a, a family, relationship, right. that of uh, your family, as the one that an individual has with his or her physician. And that is the part that I believe makes medicine different. So it needs to be run like a business so that we can stay in practice and so that nobody expects physicians or should have expected a physician to go into medicine purely out of altruistic drive. We all, we all need to earn a living. Um, so it's a fine balance, but I, I think that people do need to get their arms around the idea that it's a business. They need to understand uh, the basic tenets or, or easily hire that out. There's no reason that a physician should know how to run a business any more than a car mechanic does or a restaurateur or an attorney or anybody else. We, there are lots and lots of resources to help you run that, but to suggest that it somehow uh, sullies your practice uh, if you think about things like profit or payer mix or marketing plans or advertising or those sorts of things is, I, I believe, absurd. Hmm. Well, Kelly, do you think that there's anything that we can do as a nation and policy-wise to better protect this sacrosanct relationship between doctors and patients? Do you see sort of a way forward for healthcare policy, or are we just doomed? Well, I, from a policy perspective, I think it's, uh, unfortunately, I believe it's likely too late to totally repeal the law. Although people are, you know, here we are getting into another election cycle, and uh, while several years ago you heard repeal and replace, repeal and replace over and over again, we are so far down the pike now that it would be extraordinarily expensive to do that, and that would get laid on the uh, back of whatever politician suggested it. So I think full-out repeal is uh, unfortunately unlikely at this point because insurance companies have spent billions of dollars revamping things. Physician practices have, hospitals have, and I think it's unlikely to happen. Um, all of that said, physicians in general are a pretty creative group, and people find workarounds. And I think that you will see some creative solutions to this, um, whether it's a continued growth of the concierge practice, um, health uh, clubs, medical health clubs. Uh, You will see, I think, an increase in medical tourism and in lots of workarounds that uh, allow people to, to continue to have those interpersonal relationships. Unfortunately, what you see and what, you, what could have been predicted and what is the case in every other country, Hadley, that has a version of government-subsidized health care or a socialized medical system, is what that does is you will see an increase in the dichotomy mm. between those people who have money and the rest of the population. Because the people who will be, it becomes the ultimate two-tiered system, exactly what we were trying to prevent. Avoid, yeah. Because those people who have money and who have means, just like they do in in England and Sweden and Mexico and Cuba, will go and be able to avail themselves of the highest quality health care from private physicians who are off the grid. And those, the rest of the masses will be in a system that is highly regulated, highly rationed, 
and and is part of the new healthcare system in the United States. And I think that that's a crime. Man, Kelly, this has all been so fascinating, and I really appreciate you laying out the the facts for us on the healthcare issue, especially how it affects physicians and the world of medicine. Where can people find more ab- about your work and uh, about you? Well, I uh, I write. I won't call it a blog any longer because it's really a, a more of a library, a repository of articles that I've written on the subjects. Um, but uh, they can find them at KellyVictoryMD uh, dot com. I've uh, written over the years for a number of congressmen, senators, governors, other politicians, and helped them to craft their response on uh, on the health care. Uh, question and a healthcare reform help them to understand the system. It's uh, it's funny as an aside. It's patently absurd to assume that any physician, excuse me, politician, can have really a very deep understanding of this. It's extraordinarily complicated, and uh, I know that I am in rarefied air, having actually read the entire Obamacare legislation prior to its passage. I think I think there are probably four of us out there <laughs> who who uh, went through that task. Um, but I have, as a result, been in a position to advise and talk to a number of politicians over the years on that. So I do have um, quite a few articles on Obamacare and trying to simplify it, what I think are the top um, the issues that are of our greatest concern, and to bring out some of the lesser-known components of the legislation and bring people's attention to them. Wow. Well, we're so glad to to been able to have you with us today. Kelly, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us. This has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. Uh, To those who listen, thanks for tuning in. You can find out more about this topic and many more at iwf.org. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.